Hello, it's Tuesday, October the 17th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to America's 45th president. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Joining me today in studio here on the Stanford University campus, Stephen Haber. He is the Peter and Helen Bing Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the AA and Gene Welch Milligan Professor in the School of Humanities and Sciences at Stanford University. He is also one of Stanford's most distinguished professors. You go to his website, you'll see he's received all kinds of accolades from the university. Stephen Haber's current research includes the creation of regulatory barriers to entry in finance, the economic and political consequences of holdup problems created by different systems of agricultural production, and the comparative development of patent systems. And that's the topic of today's podcast, patents. Steve, the U.S. patent system celebrated its 217th birthday in April, uh, 217 years since the creation of the Federal Patent Board. 1790, the State Department had the responsibility for administering the patent laws. Fees for a patent were between 4 and $5, which I think is about $250 in today's currency. The board decided on the duration of each patent not to exceed 14 years. So, the obligatory founding father's question. Today, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office is 11 buildings uh, sequestered in Alexandria, Virginia, about halfway between Capitol Hill and Mount Vernon. So, the question is, the founding fathers looking at today's patent system, what would they think? I think if they were to look at the size of the patent office, which you referred to, they would be pleased. Um, their conception uh, was that uh, America was full of inventive people, mm -hmm. and that uh, one way for the nation to prosper was to um, create a property right that uh, allowed people to earn a return from their ideas. Uh, so I think they would be pleased to see the growth of the patent system and the, the amazing range of things that are patented. Uh, I think they would be less pleased to see that the patent system has in the last oh, eight years or so um, become degraded um, through both court decisions and changes in um, the law, particularly the American Events Act, that um, have made it harder for a small entrepreneur uh, or small inventor to defend his or her patent. So I think in that sense they would be displeased uh, about what has occurred in the short run, but pleased looking over the last 217 years. According to uh, recent data from the World Intellectual Property Organization, uh, WIPO, Chinese patent applications jumped 45% in 2016. U.S. patent applications actually declined by 1%. Uh, is that cause for alarm, or is that business as it goes in America? I think that's cause for alarm. I think that what the, um, what the decline in patenting in the United States is picking up is that firms are, are increasingly not relying on the patent system to protect their intellectual property. Uh, and some firms are not innovating at all because they look at the, at, the, um, uh, at the patent landscape right now and they realize that it's very easy for a large firm to infringe the patent of a small firm. Uh, this is cynically known in Silicon Valley as efficient infringement which uh, boils down to the following business practice. Um, you observe a uh, smaller firm has uh, patented something, mm -hmm. and of course you have to provide the uh, specifications for the patent, and the, you have to explain how the technology works. Large firm infringes, 
small firm says, hey, you've infringed, and large firm says, sue me. And so uh, they'll then string this out in court for years on end at costs of uh, five to seven billion dollars, excuse me, five to seven million dollars per case. And for small firms, this can be ruinous. And that's efficient infringement as that's opposed to inefficient. So that, what, what makes it efficient? What makes it efficient is if you're a big firm, mm -hmm. it's efficient to infringe the patent, earn income from it, uh, and then roll the dice that you may not actually get sued because, uh, or successfully sued, because the small firm's not going to be able to, to won't have the deep pockets. Right, they can't lawyer up. They can't lawyer up, right. and, they, and they'll just simply out-lawyer them. So how long would that process drag out? Uh, this could drag out for five years. Mm -hmm. You know, that's kind of analogous to Hollywood in this respect. If a writer uh, for a screenplay uh, has issues with royalties, the writer will go after the studio, and the studio's first response is to litigate, is just to get a team of lawyers to just drag it out in court and just bleed the writer dry until the writer goes away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, th I imagine that's true. This is a big change uh, in the patent system. One of the things that's a that permitted it to change was in 2006, the Supreme Court in the eBay decision made it, directed um, district courts in terms of when you should and should not grant an injunction. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, the most district courts have interpreted the eBay decision as uh, it should be more difficult to get an injunction. Well, barring an injunction, the small firm is really at a disadvantage. If you can enjoin the larger firm from selling your product, now you can force them to the negotiating table. But if you cannot, I'll just string this on for years on end and bleed you dry. Right. Uh, Steve, the Global Intellectual Property Center of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce recently issued its fifth annual Global IP Index. And it found the U.S. had dropped in the world rankings of nations that protect intellectual property to 10th overall on the issue of patents tied with that economic powerhouse. Hungry. Yes, I noticed that. <laughs> what what has happened in this country to drive us down to ten? Well, I think there's two things that happened. Um, the the fundamental cause uh, was that the business model of a few very large tech companies uh, in the let's say post 2005 world came to be um, let's um, infringe the patents of smaller players, mm -hmm. um, defend our patents but infringe theirs. And they lobbied very hard for legal changes, particularly the American Invents Act of 2011. Right. The American Invents Act created two um, quasi-courts that uh, allow patents to be challenged um, after, after being issued. Um, the um, inter partes review and the post-grant review process. Right. And these are used by larger firms to challenge smaller firms, uh, challenge the validity of their patent. And again, they're, they're less expensive than a, a, a legal case, but they're still expensive to go through. Mm -hmm. And firms can, large firms can continually come up with new reasons for challenging the validity of a patent. They can also find uh, third parties uh, who will challenge the validity of the patent. Uh, and in fact, there are firms that do nothing more than challenge patent validity uh, at the uh, the uh, Patent Trial Appeals Board, the PTAB. Right. Uh, this is their business model. So there is so the the AIA had a big effect. Mm -hmm. The other uh, effect has been a series of Supreme Court decisions, uh, starting with um, uh, eBay versus Merck Exchange in 2006, in which 
the ability to er, to obtain an injunction was reduced. Mm-hmm. You put the two things together, and it's not surprising that you create a, an institutional ecosystem in which it's very hard to defend your patent. Right. And therefore, patent rights deteriorate, and therefore, um, smaller firms in particular are patenting less. Right. This is coming at a long story short for listeners. This is coming at a cost to your children and grandchildren's future. Let's get back to PTAB for a moment, the Patent Trial and Appeals Board. Uh, I've seen it described as a lifesaver, and I have seen it described as the patent debt squad. (laughs) Those are two extremes on the spectrum, so where do you land in that spectrum? I land more on the death squad side than the lifesaver side. Because the... my own view of this is that the way the U.S. patent system developed was that uh, the patent office granted patents. Mm-hmm. Um, if a patent turned out to be valuable, right. and if there was dispute uh, regarding that patent, uh, regarding its validity, mm-hmm. then uh, the um, sides would take each other to court, right. and all the evidence would be uh, laid out uh, in court under the sort of full uh, rules of evidence and argument in our legal system. Right. The Patent Trial and Appeals Board circumvents Article Three courts mm-hmm. um, and instead uses administrative law judges to make determinations that they're not actually well-suited to make. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the result of this is a lot of findings of invalidity uh, of patents that may, in fact, be valid patents. Right. Now, when they created this board, Stephen, they were expecting how many petitions a year? Maybe a few hundred? I think that's probably right. They received over the past five years 7,300. Mm-hmm. So it's about 1,400, 1,500 a year. Mm-hmm. So are they are they swamped by the caseload? How do they process, how do they process I, the petitions? I can't say whether or not they're swamped or not. I'm mm-hmm. not right. a member of the PTAB. Uh, I can't talk to what their workload is. Who, who serves on PTAB? These are admi- basically administrative law judges. Okay. Um, I'm sure that they do the best job they can do. Mm-hmm. Right? I, I, but the, the point I would want to make is that whether or not, for example, there is prior art, mm-hmm. um, that is, you know, a patent has to be novel, so you have to demonstrate that there's, pro- you would have to demonstrate there's no prior art. That is something that is best left to a full trial right. where all of the evidence can be brought to bear, uh, the notebooks of engineers, uh, the scribblings of inventors, mm-hmm. as to who had an idea first, and for a jury to then sort out um, whether or not there really was prior art. Was this, uh, was, is this a novel invention? I think the PTAB, by design, um, doesn't sort of functions on the notion that if it looks like it's reasonably the case that the um, the patent is not valid, then they decide for invalidity. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 made it harder to get a patent, and it's made it harder for a small firm to defend its patent. Think about the way this would have gone before. Now a large firm can challenge the validity of the small firm's patent by going to the PTAB. Right. Okay. This costs a small firm maybe three, four $400,000. But you can keep coming back again and again and again. Mm-hmm. 
In the old days, let's say the large firm, which would have to happen is the large firm would infringe. The small firm would then litigate. Um, the small firm might be able to get an injunction against the large firm to prevent it from selling its product. That would force the large firm to the negotiating table. Um, so we've created a, we moved from a system in which it was possible for small firms to use the legal system to defend their property rights against large firms to a system in which large firms can use the legal system to reduce the property rights of the small firms before they've even had a chance, um, oh, before they've even had a chance. I mean, right. this is, the, we have tilted, we have tilted the playing field in favor of the big incumbents. Mm -hmm. uh, patents run for 14 years in the United States? 20. 20 years in the United States. Uh, has there been a reform movement to either shrink or expand the 20-year limit? Um, there have been various proposals. Um, we, the AIA actually increased the term to 20, making it consistent with what other countries do. Mm -hmm. um, there have been proposals that there should be different patent terms for different kinds of products, let's say pharma versus tech. Right. But those have never gone anywhere because it actually turns out to be quite complicated right. to decide what, it, what is a pharmaceutical patent, what is a tech patent. And so those proposals have tended not to go very far. Right. So you mentioned the pharma and uh, technology views of this thing. I, I find this fascinating because there's obviously oceans of money on both sides. Politically, it's interesting, Stephen, because now it gets to the question of who's more effective at lobbying Washington. Uh, you could argue that uh, big pharma might have an advantage. They've been doing it longer than big tech has. Um, you could also argue they have a break and that it's a Republican Congress and not a, if not a Democratic Congress, in which case big pharma would be wrought in the, in the crosshairs. Um, but you look at this and you ask, okay, let's put this in human terms, and there's a very good case in front of us to talk about. I'm going to now ask you a series of McCarthy-like questions here. <laughs> have I now or ever been? <laughs> have you now ever been a member of the Mohawk Indian tribe? <laughs> no. <laughs> have you now or ever used a product from allergen? Probably. Okay, probably. What are their two biggest products? Um, eye drops. And Botox. And Botox, yeah. Right, and their eye, do and their eye drop product is Restasis, mm -hmm. which you probably say advertised on TV. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I mention this because a federal judge in Texas the other day invalidated four key patents for Restasis. And this is fascinating for a couple of reasons. Number one, there is a vast amount of money involved. Uh, I looked up um, Allergen's market cap today. It's $66 billion. Now, that's not in the league of Apple or Google, but that's about three times the market cap of Tesla. So this mm -hmm. is not inconsequential. Secondly, we're dealing with a product that has a lot of use in the consumer sector. I drop dry eye people out there. So... This is an interesting case because what did Restasis, what did Allergen do to try to avoid its patent situation here? What did they do? They turned over their patent to the Mohawk Indian tribe. And why did they do that, Stephen? Well, you want to do that because the, um, um, you, want to, you want to avoid being countersued. Right. So if you can turn over your patent to an entity that simply owns the patent right. and enforces the patent, um, but does not actually practice the patent, right. you can avoid the problem of a, of, a, of a countersuit. Right. So they gave the patent to the St. Regis Mohawk tribe in New York, and then the Mohawk tribe did what? They leased it back to Allergen. So what do you think of this practice? I, on the one hand, I think, okay, this is business. This is, this is how I protect my money-making device. On the other hand, I wonder, is this really an ethical thing to do? I think that, like lots of things, there are 
once you start to prohibit contracting, mm -hmm. it becomes a very slippery slope right. as to what you're going to permit and not permit. It is standard practice for firms to lease patents, mm -hmm. license patents to one another, right. sell, sell patents, lend patents, rent patents. This is how markets work. Right. Um, so I don't think that there is some huge public policy problem for us to be concerned about. Okay, so this, I imagine, is going to climb up the federal ladder, and it's probably going to head this Supreme Court's way at some point if it gets there. And they're going to have to raise a lot of questions, including the sovereign immunity shields that Indian tribes get in America. Mm -hmm. So, interesting case. You mentioned the T-word trial. What about another T-word, which is troll? Mm -hmm. What is a patent troll? So a patent troll is a pejorative term for a company you don't like. Mm -hmm. um, any, it has no technical meaning. Um, it is a uh, marketing term that was uh, dreamed up by tech com big tech companies mm -hmm. that wanted to infringe the patents of small tech companies and announced that they were trolls, the notion being that they're like the monsters in Scandinavian folktales right. that are underneath bridges waiting to jump out and mug passers-by. Let me read you this quote from Dick Durbin, the senator from Illinois. He said, quote, whoever came up with that phrase should get a special bonus because they managed <laughs> to mischaracterize anyone who goes to court to assert patent rights as a troll. Correct. Okay, he's on target. You have analyzed patent trolls, and you've written about it in a paper that's called Patents and the Wealth of Nations. Mm -hmm. uh, where can our listeners find that paper? Is it online somewhere? Uh, absolutely. So you can... Um should be able to download it off my website. You should also be able to download it off of the Hoover IP2 website. Okay. And you can also download it off of the website of the George Mason University Law School uh, Law Review. Mm -hmm. So it is, uh, if you Google patent in the Wealth of Nations, that paper will pop up. All right. So I'm going to sum up your paper in this regard. You found that countries that protect patents enjoy stronger economic growth. That is correct. Okay. You also, uh, your research also showed that the patent troll narrative, litigious patent holders can hold up innovation for bigger groups. Is it consistent with the data? That is correct. How so? So the thing that most listeners need to understand about the so-called patent trolls, yeah. first off, is they're very small. Right. Um, most are no bigger than a Krispy Kreme franchise in terms of annual revenues. Right. So even if uh, a troll is a, um, or it's, let's use the non-pejorative term, a patent assertion entity, mm -hmm. is a nuisance. It's the size of a gnat, not a monstrous troll. Right. If, you, if you add up all the revenues of all known trolls, and you try to inflate the numbers, as my co-author and I do, you can generate a number that is slightly less than the amount that the United States spends on Halloween mm -hmm. every year. So we're not talking about very large numbers. We're talking about way less, way less than 1% of the revenues of the largest tech firms. So the notion that these could be a serious tax, a tax on innovation is false. They're just too small. The second thing uh, about trolls, the second myth about trolls, is that they're just using specious IP to file nuisance lawsuits. Right. If you actually look at what trolls do, and it's not hard because many of them are publicly traded firms, mm -hmm. you'll find that they spend an order of magnitude more on research and development 
than Apple does. They're typically spending about 30% of revenues on Mm R&D. That makes them amongst the most R&D intense firms in the United States. It implies that they're not purchasing specious intellectual property. They're purchasing intellectual property with real value or, in many cases, they're developing it themselves. So a lot of so-called trolls, in fact, have big engineering staffs, uh, and they're developing patented technologies, and they're simply in the patent licensing business. There's nothing unethical or troll-like about it. This is simply a term that's been bandied about by firms that don't like them. The third thing you'll notice about the so-called trolls is almost all of them lose money. Um, If you thought this was uh, a way for a firm to earn quick judgments or quick settlements. Jump jump in, sue, get paid off, and move on, right? Yes, that's not what they do because, no, because most of them, in fact, lose money. And if you look at their their financial performance in stock market, with only one or two exceptions, which, in fact, may not be trolls at all, um, you would have been better off to invest it in the S&P 500. On a risk-adjusted basis, these are not good bets. Okay, so you've made a pretty compelling argument for why this is an overstated fact and why it's a bad bet to do so, but why do people do it? I know, and you're going to probably give me the Willie Sutton answer because that's where the money is, but if you're telling me that on average you're going to lose, why do you get in? So what you're, what you, if you look at most of the large trolls, mm-hmm. um, they were technology firms, they were licensing firms, well, they were technology companies that moved from producing a product, often a uh, computer chip, right to um, simply licensing their IP. Mm-hmm. So they didn't get created in order to be these troll-like entities. They were um, operating companies that whose products did not fare well in the market, but which had valuable IP. And so they moved into the business of licensing their IP and then developing technologies and licensing them. Mm-hmm. Um, that's their, the, the history of this is not the history of let's create these pernicious monsters. The other, uh, you, there are some trolls that work, or I hate that word, there are some PAEs that were created um, in order to sort of, uh, to bring together intellectual property. That PAE stands for? Patent assertion entity. Thank you. Um, which were made to agglomerate intellectual property and then sue uh-huh. uh, firms that were infringing. And the business model there is, is several fold. For some of them, what, what drove it is a belief that money could be made off the fact that there were asymmetries in abilities to litigate between patent holders, mm-hmm. pretended to be small, small patent holders, and large tech companies. So if I'm a, an inventor, and I get infringed, I don't have the deep pockets to go up against, you know, a Google, right. an Apple, a Cisco. But if I sell my patent uh, to a firm that specializes in enforcing them, uh, that firm has the deep pockets to do that. Some of these entities, like Intellectual Ventures, were sort of founded along those lines. They have found it actually quite difficult to, uh, to make much money uh, in that business. So uh, lots of businesses get created and then, and then um, and then fail or, or perform um, me, in a mediocre manner. Mm-hmm. Um, the third kind of troll that gets crea- or PAE that gets created, <laughs> see, they've got us using their category. The third kind of PAE that got created is actually created by the big tech companies themselves. Right. 
so Rockstar Bitco, for example, uh, was created by a consortium uh, of uh, large firms, particularly Apple, Motorola, Ericsson, and some others, mm-hmm. um, mostly to sue Google and other Android uh, device makers. Right. The funny part of this is, is the same firms that decry trolls created a very large troll, which incidentally did not make money. <laughs> this turns out to be a very difficult business. All trolls are not made the same as what you're saying. Y- yes, and and um, and the, you know, there's the, the important point I want to sort of circle back to is this: it's not the goal of public policy right. to make sure that everybody makes money. Mm-hmm. Some people come up with business ideas and they fail. In fact, most businesses do fail. Right. Um, it, that's capitalism. It's supposed to happen that way. Right. right? So years ago, Stephen, there was a lawyer in California named Bill Laretch, uh, down in San Diego. And Bill Laretch was the king of the nuisance lawsuit in corporate California. And what he would do is he would take shareholders from companies and he would go to court and sue the companies over companies losing stock value. And he was a pest and companies would pay him off and he made a very good living doing this. As we look at PAEs, we look at the trolling situation. Is there a poster boy, is there a poster child for bad behavior in this? I think... You know, rather than calling out any particular company, mm-hmm. uh, I'm sure that there are PAEs that are bad actors. Right. Um, but again, I would come around to the the fundamental point about public policy, which is there are bad actors in every line of business. In fact, I think of it as the Keanu Reeves problem, right? Keanu Reeves always plays Keanu Reeves, right? right. He's a bad actor. <laughs> Um, it's not a goal of public policy to make sure that, you know, all, all actors are Morgan Freeman, okay? Similarly, it should not be a goal of public policy to create a frictionless world uh, in which there are absolutely no bad actors. There inevitably will be. The goal of public policy, rather, is if bad acting becomes a systemic problem, mm-hmm then we should start to worry about it. But if it's not a systemic problem, Mm -hmm. if it's something that can be best handled um, through the courts, for example, then we should just leave it to courts and not create legislative solutions. Because those legislative solutions to small problems, Mm -hmm. nuisances and annoyances, may have unintended consequences for the society at large in which the cost of fixing the nuisance is much greater than whatever cost is imposed by the nuisance. Let's extend the acting metaphor here for a moment and let's look at that very complicated ensemble a company in Washington called Republican Congress and Republican White House. In theory, new White House comes into Washington with the GOP Congress, they can do what they want to, and so you look at the previous administration and say, okay, we're going to change what they did, we're going to undo what they did. This Congress, this President, Steve, looking at the Obama administration and what the Obama administration did on patent reform, what will they change? What do you think they could change? What would they undo? And it's, and to extend the question, what do you think they will do in the near term? Because they're swamped. The swamp is swamped. <laughs> uh, it's a great question and a difficult one because it is very hard to know, given the uh, legislative history of the current administration and uh, the current Congress as to what they have been able to accomplish. Okay, let's take it from a different angle then. Let's give them the Stephen Haber to-do list. I think that the, I think one very important 
thing that needs to happen is that we need to rethink the role of our competition policy agencies. Mm -hmm. um, we have the FTC and we have the, the Federal Trade the Commission, Commission and we have the um, antitrust division of the Department of Justice. Mm -hmm. Under the Obama White House, these entities came to see a large part of their mission as trying to limit the amount of license royalties that technology development companies could earn off of operating companies. Right. It was a very funny thing to do. The operating companies are amongst the largest, these are the phone manufacturers, for example, mm -hmm. are amongst the largest companies in the world, largest companies the world's ever seen. Right. So for the competition policy agencies like the FTC and the DOJ antitrust division to be advocating for the largest firms against the smaller firms seems to me a reversal of what of why we created those agencies in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that a rethinking of the role of those agencies is called for. When you say rethinking, is that rethinking who runs the agency? Yes. Re redesigning the mission of the agency? Or? I, I think this is really about personnel. Personnel. This is about who who are appointed to key positions, particularly the commissioners of the FTC. Right. My next question. So take the FTC. Give me, the, give me your profile of the ideal FTC commissioner. What background do you want that person to have? Do you want a market person? Do you want, a, do you want an academic? Do you want something in between? I think that one of the reasons why there's five FTC commissioners mm -hmm. is that you have the opportunity to have a mix. Mix and match, right. Um, and so you may have some people who are uh, lawyers, mm -hmm. and you may have some people who are economists, and you may have some people who had a um, long track record in private enterprise, mm -hmm. and you may have some people who spent their lives in academia. Mm -hmm. uh, it's designed, because there are five commissioners, it's designed specifically to get that kind of balance. Um, it's also designed to have ideological balance. Um, now, because there's five and the chairman doesn't change, the president does have a lot of sway in terms of who the chair is. And the uh, largest number of commissioners are going to come from the majority party mm -hmm. uh, in the Senate. Um, so my own view of this is that you, you, know, you want a mix of people and it's not so much that they should have this orientation or that orientation, but they should see their, I think it's a question about what their vision is for their own mission. Right. Um, and their, their goal is to make the American economy as robust as possible and to maximize economic opportunity mm -hmm. because that's you know, if you look at the last 220 years of U.S. history, it's very clear Americans are in favor of what broadly we could call economic opportunity, mm -hmm. which means a rising standard of living for them or their children and meaningful work for them and their children. The goal of public policy is to ensure um, that the engine that created all of America's economic opportunity is not squelched. Okay, so and so should, that they should very much have that in mind as they 
go about their jobs. So let's have you play Senator Haber now for a minute. And you're sitting in a confirmation hearing, and you have an FTC commissioner in front of you. What questions you ask? What What are you going to ask in terms of litmus test to find to find out if they're suitable for the job? Is there a certain case law you put in front of them? Is there a sort of a general principle you want? What What What? Do you I want think to that, that I w- I would focus more on general principles, mm-hmm. and. I think rather than ask them about general, you know, what is your general principle? Because it's like studying. Look, I've been an, a professor for 32 years, and I know students are good for studying. For, uh, students are good at studying for tests. Right. So if you expect that this guy's going to ask you about what principles you follow, you're going to, you know, tell him what he wants to hear. Right. Uh, just as many uh, students are very good at telling Be professors. He's looked up what Haber has written about it. Yeah, so yeah exactly. So I think what you what you want to look at is what their track record is in terms of adhering to general principles mm-hmm. uh, and uh, to ask them um, probing questions about the decisions they've made in the past and why they made those particular decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would, that, would be, that would be my focus, would, would be to ask specific questions about what people had done in the past, written, uh, stated, opined, uh, and, and asked, how does that conform to a general principle about the public good rather than narrow private interests? Now, where does patent policy rest, Stephen, at a time where we have a president who is nationalist, at times protectionist, not always a free market kind of guy? Where, where do you find the patent issue floating around in the Trump administration? I'm not asking you what Donald Trump thinks about patents, but just you have an interesting lineup right now in this administration. Mike Pence, when he was in the House, he sat on the House Subcommittee for Intellectual Property. So he is not unfamiliar with the topic. Donald Trump Jr. worked for a company that pursued patent enforcement. Donald Trump's uncle was an inventor and an MIT professor. He has 23 patents to his name. Donald Trump built a fortune in part upon branding and trademarks to protect him. I think China last year, Stephen, uh, uh, approved something like 35 to 40 patents that are Trump-related in some way. So he is not unfamiliar with the topic. Obviously, it's not on his mind. It's not on his 3 o'clock in the morning tweets necessarily. But it's something that's been germane to his existence. But you look at this presidency, you see what he ran on, how he got elected. How do patents fit into that mosaic? I think they fit into the mosaic. And, again, I don't want to talk about what I think President Trump will or won't do because he's not made any statements along these lines. I think there's a larger issue that is part of the mosaic of – the current questioning um, about how America is going to maintain its influence around the world. Mm -hmm. Um, It is not possible to maintain American influence around the world without a strong American economy. Our economic leadership is our, in fact, our most important uh, tool in in our toolkit of influencing world events. It is simply not possible for us to continue to be influential around the world if we have an economy that is not innovation based. Mm -hmm. That is, if we give up our biggest comparative advantage, which is the ability for ideas to flourish here, for ideas to be turned into property rights and property rights to be turned into products. We are in danger of giving up, in my view, economic ground to countries that do not just compete with us economically, but which seek to compete with us in terms of world influence, most particularly China. Mm -hmm. 
So simply from the point of view of the long-run future of America's influence in the world, which is coincident with the creation of economic opportunity for American families, we would do well to rethink the assault on the patent system that has occurred over the last eight years. I would therefore, not knowing what President Trump is thinking or anybody in his administration, but if I were asked, you know, what should you be thinking about, I would suggest that one thing you want to think very hard about is the enforcement of American property rights abroad, Mm -hmm. and that requires the enforcement of American property rights at home. Mm -hmm. Currently, if you talk to uh, regulators or uh, legislators in other parts of the world, particularly in China and India, I've been spending a lot of time, they'll tell you, well, what do you mean? Uh, enforce American property rights in India or China. You guys don't enforce them at home. Why should we enforce them here? Right. It's a very powerful argument. Um, and it leaves American um, negotiators quite flat-footed. So I think that as a first step mm-hmm. in creating a robust U.S. economy that can be influential in the world, we need to protect property rights at home. Um, we need to rethink the assault on the patent system. And we certainly should not pass any more legislation designed to weaken the patent system the way the American Invents Act did. Right. So circling back to how we began this conversation, the idea that in terms of protecting intellectual property, the United States is 10th overall in the world. How do you move the United States up that chart? Well, I think there's a couple things you can do. One is to roll back. There are currently... Uh, court challenges wind its way to the Supreme Court mm-hmm. as to the constitutionality of the Patent Trial and Appeals Board. Okay. Um, I imagine that by next year we'll have a ruling from the Supreme Court on that. Um, I think another uh, step that can be taken has to do with personnel, uh, particularly the commissioners of the FTC, uh, the naming commissioners of the FTC, uh, and the staffing of um, the Department of Justice. So I think those are two concrete uh, things that can be done uh, in the short run. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of res- uh, correcting that other problem we talked about earlier, which was uh, U.S. patent applications actually declining in 2016, what can a presidency do, what can a federal government do to change that around? How can they encourage Americans to actually start applying? I don't think this is a question of of a president or an administration encouraging people to apply. People are very good at figuring out what's in their incentives. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I talk to entrepreneurs uh, here in Silicon Valley and elsewhere. They make it very clear to me that it's not in their incentive set to develop a, t- a technology that is patentable because if they patent that technology, it will be infringed. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you take away the threat of efficient infringement, then what will happen is that people will respond quite rationally and uh, they'll start patenting again. Uh, so I think that the key is not, you know, it's not for the president to stand up and say, oh, we need more patenting. Uh, I think that, you know, you get the institutions right uh, and people will follow their incentives. Okay, final question. Optimist or pessimist in terms of patent improvement in Washington? Uh, I'm actually right now optimistic. Optimistic, why so? Because I think that there is a growing realization, uh, not only on Capitol Hill, but in the public at large, 
that the patent troll narrative, which was promoted by a few very large uh, companies in Silicon Valley, um, was part of their successful business model, mm -hmm. but um, that it rings false when compared to, when, when judged against the evidence. And it dovetails with another concern that you, you can pick up in the, even in places like the New York Times, which is a sense in which a few very large companies have managed to pull up the ladder behind them, limiting economic opportunity for average Americans. Mm -hmm. And people are asking us, well, how did this happen? How did we go from a country characterized by lots of social and economic mobility to a country characterized by much less? A big part, not the only part, but a big part of that story is a story about what happened in the last eight years to the U.S. patent system and the way in which um, the ability of smaller firms to use it was gutted. Good stuff. Stephen Haber, once again, where can people find your work? Uh, you can go to stephenhaber.com. Stephen, H-A-B-E-R, that's P-H. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, you can also go to the uh, website of uh, Hoover IP Squared, which is uh, hooverip2.org, uh, where you'll find not only my work, but the work of other scholars who are engaged in uh, our, the, the creation of a network of scholars who are interested in bringing data to a rhetoric fight about the patent system. Very good. Anything we overlooked in this conversation? Anything else you'd like to add? No, thank you. Very good. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for here, having me. Here in the basement of the Hoover Institution, kind of a troll-like place. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Thank you very much. You're very welcome, Bill. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, spread the word. Tell your friends about us. The Hoover Institution online is online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Stephen Haber and his colleagues to your inbox every weekday. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at HooverINST. Are you on Twitter, Steve? No, I'm not. Good man. <laughs> You're smart. <laughs> Speaking of places to get trolled. Exactly. <laughs> As I mentioned, Hoover has Facebook, Instagram, Twitter feeds, and the Twitter handle, again, is at HooverInst. That's at HooverINST. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. We're talking next about Alexander Hamilton. Till then, take care. And as always, thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.